Acts chapter 24. Why don't you join, join me there? Last week, as we were looking at Acts chapter 23, we saw that in spite of the angry mob trying to kill Paul, the Lord's providence led really to the furtherance of his plan for Paul to witness before government officials. The first of those rulers that Paul would have opportunity to do that with is a man named Felix. He was the governor of Judea and Samaria. He was a Roman governor. And that will be the focus of our passage today. At the end of our passage last week, remember that the Roman commander had defeated the Jews' plot to assassinate Paul, and he was able to successfully deliver him to a place called Caesarea, which was sort of the Roman capital. That's where Felix was at, and so he had successfully delivered Paul to Felix, and Felix had agreed to hear Paul's case. And so this is actually the first trial. What happened before the Sanhedrin really wasn't a trial. This is the first real trial that Paul's going to have, Roman trial. I'm going to break our passage down into three parts. It's going to be a little bit technical, but the first part we're going to see the prosecution bring its case against Paul. We're then going to see Paul's defense to the prosecution. But then the third part is where we would expect Felix to rule on the case, but instead he abdicates his responsibility. And what we're going to see with that is that in doing that, in abdicating his responsibility, it actually provides the Apostle Paul with further opportunity before Felix. And again, we have to remember that that's the promise that God had made to the Apostle Paul, that you will testify before leaders like Felix, and another one Festus, and King Agrippa, ultimately, and that he would go all the way to Rome and be able to testify before Caesar himself, which at this time would have been Nero. And so let's go ahead and look at this thing. Let's look at the prosecution as they bring their case against Paul. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 24, it says, After five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders, with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. So this group of accusers arrive. It's relatively small. It's a small delegation. One of the individuals is the high priest Ananias. I'll just briefly cover this because we, we touched on this last week. But Ananias, what do we know about him? Well, he was high priest from A.D. 47 to about A.D. 58 or 59. However, he was ultimately deposed. He didn't last very long as the high priest. He was a supporter of Rome, which means that he wasn't very well liked by most Jews. In fact, he was actually assassinated by a Roman zealot in A.D. 66 because of his cozying up to Rome. According to Josephus, he was a harsh and cruel man, overly rude. He was disrespectful. He was quick-tempered. We saw this with Paul, didn't he? Didn't we? When Paul responds to him and he tells the soldier next to Paul or the the guard next to Paul to punch him in the face, he was rather quick-tempered. He was also known to be corrupt. And we see this because he's clearly a part of the plot to assassinate Paul back in Acts chapter 24. It was for reasons like these that the Jews actually despised Ananias as the high priest. He was not a good man. Completely, totally, morally corrupt. Not what you would expect for a leader of God's people. Then there was a small handful of Israel elders. You see the word some there. This group of charming fellows was probably... Um, part of the plot that tried to assassinate Paul. It's pretty clear from the context and where this has taken us. They were the leading men of the Jews mentioned in Acts chapter 25. They were portrayed as 
wicked. In fact, this is kind of interesting. There are 30 times in the Gospels where the elders of Israel are mentioned. Anybody want to guess what the breakdown of that is in terms of where they're viewed positively versus where they're viewed negatively? Just a stab at it. Remember what Jesus said about the leaders of Israel? Out of the 30 times in the Gospel of Acts that the elders of Israel are mentioned, there's only two where they are not portrayed as utterly wicked. Think about that. 28 times in the Gospels, when the elders of Israel come up, they are just portrayed as wicked. They constantly oppose Jesus. They were involved with concocting the plot to have Jesus arrested, including bribing Judas, and then bringing the mob to the garden to arrest Jesus in the dark of night. They were involved with the unlawful, unjust, secret, at-night trial of Jesus, which completely violated Jewish law. They mocked Jesus at his crucifixion. They walked through the crowds and convinced the people to release a murderer over an innocent man. And then after that, they were part of the plan with the Apostle Paul to murder Christians. That's the guys that come down to now try Paul. Not all of them, just some. And then there's this man named Tertullus. He's the attorney. His role is to basically ensure that he's able to present the case according to Roman law, because again, this is a Roman trial, and so they brought an attorney down who could make the case for them. He would have been um, thoroughly um, taught and understanding in how the Jewish, or how the uh, Roman court system would work. And we actually see that with the way that he presents his case. I won't go into all the details, but he clearly understands Roman law, and he knows how to present the case. And so he's there for that. Now, the one thing that's not mentioned here are any eyewitnesses, which is rather peculiar. You would think, to be tried, you would want to bring your eyewitnesses. Those who saw things happen, but they didn't bring any eyewitnesses with them. Now, a little bit later, um, we do see that there are some Jews that are there, and they will shout things towards Paul's, or about Paul's case in some respects. But they weren't eyewitnesses. They probably were local Jews in Caesarea. One of the things about Roman courts is they were wide open, and so people could come and watch. And that's likely how these Jews came in. But again, you have this small group of people, wicked high priest, a wicked group of leaders, and an attorney. Do I add wicked? No, I can't do that. But they're all there to bring their case against the Apostle Paul. Go to verses 2 through 4. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, since we have thoroughly, or since we have through you attained much peace, and since your, or and by your Providence, reforms are being carried out for this nation. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, and with thankfulness. But that I might not weary you any longer, I beg you to grant us, by your kindness, a brief hearing. Now, one of the things we're going to see with Tertullus here is he begins by flattering the governor with these false accolades, this effort to ingratiate himself to the governor and hopefully, therefore, persuade him into a positive ruling. Look at some of what he does. He praised him for bringing peace to the region of Judea and Samaria. Notice he says, since we through you have attained much peace. The reality was actually far different than that. While Joseph, or I'm sorry, while Josephus did credit Felix with shutting down some Jewish zealots, he also stated that tension between the Jews and the Romans actually escalated under Felix's time, specifically because of the way that he treated the Jews. There were three major rebellions of Jews against Rome, the first of which happened in Judea about 67 AD, just a few years after Felix had left office, well, actually after he was assassinated. And so he had so inflamed tensions that it led to three significant revolts against Rome by the Jews. Of all the governors leading up to Felix... 
He was generally thought to be the one who stirred up more trouble because of his brutal suppression against the Jews than any other governor prior to him. That's what history has to say about him. This man didn't bring peace to Samaria and Judea. He did quite the opposite. And yet, here we have the attorney saying, You've, or we, we've attained so much peace because of you. He's basically blowing smoke. It's called flattery. Next, you notice that he praises governor for his approach to enforcing Roman law. This was a joke as well. Notice he says, And since by your providence, your foresight, reforms are being carried out for this nation, when you get into the language that's used there and you look at some other documents, that statement refers to how a governor carried out the law. How did he treat the law? How did he execute the laws? This phrase actually refers to that specifically. So what he's basically doing is he's praising him for how he's handled the law. Another Roman historian, Tacitus, referred to this governor here. This is actually an interesting phrase. He referred to him as somebody, quote, with the power of a king, but the mind of a slave. In other words, it was a derogatory statement. He may be a king, but he thinks like an uneducated slave. Not very flattering. He didn't understand or he didn't practice the law appropriately. What do we know about tyrants? Well, they disdain the law. It doesn't apply to them. It only applies to others. Notice that um, Felix, a little bit later here, keeps Paul in prison for two years for one reason. Well, it says he liked to talk to him, but another reason, he was hoping to get a bribe. That's the way tyrants work. Law doesn't apply to them. They might arrest somebody, find them, try them, throw them in jail for bribery, but hey, they can do it themselves. They also interpret and apply the law in a way that's written or intended, or not the way that it's written or intended, but however they seem fit. They'll apply laws that they like and not apply laws they don't, or they'll twist and pervert the law to their benefit. That's the way tyrants work. They use the law as a weapon against the citizenry. They bring it down as a hammer. Dare I give a modern-day example of what we see happening in our country today with the way this current administration treats our laws? I mean, time and time and time again, we've seen this administration not just ignore laws, think about our immigration policies, but actually violate them. We've seen how they've taken and twisted certain things, used certain agencies to promote things or to enforce things that those agencies have no reason to be involved with. We've seen recently how some of the mandates issued by this administration have been shut down by the Supreme Court, the highest court in our land. Why? Because this administration continues to flaunt this abuse of power and this misapplication of law and this twisting and turning and the ignoring of those very things that have been put in place by Congress. Whether you agree with them or not, the role of the administration is to enforce the law when it comes to these things. Live by it, right? What about what we see happening in Congress with Congress men and women sometimes? Laws don't apply to them. We've seen in the past where they actually passed laws that apply to all the citizenry but don't apply to them. Remember the whole Obamacare thing? You know? They want to try to enforce that on all Americans, but we're going to exempt Congress. See, the law, that's the way tyrants work. Now, I know we're not supposed to cross too far into politics, and I get myself in trouble, and it's okay. My point is simply pointing out that this is Tertullus praising this governor for his approach to the law. We see that in our own world today. I'm sure we have many on one side of the political fence that love to see what they see. In fact, many of them have called for the abandonment of the Constitution. No longer applies today. It should be tossed out. We should have a new Bill of Rights. That's the way tyrants work. 
And so he's in essence praising Felix, a tyrant here. Notice Felix, or I'm sorry, Tertullus, says that they acknowledge in every way and everywhere with all kindness his handling of the law. That's by all the Jewish leaders, he says. Gee, I wonder why the Jewish leaders might look at Felix in some respects with favor when the rest of the population couldn't stand him. Because the leadership was corrupt. So of course they're going to praise him for the way that he handles the law because he's just like they are. Those that are corrupt will praise those who are corrupt. And so we have this attorney here who's just flattering Felix, trying to play on his emotions and his pride and his arrogance to get a favorable ruling. He pours on the charm one last time in verse 4. Notice it says, But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us, by your kindness, that's not a word that applied to Felix, by your kindness, a brief hearing. Again, just flattering words to sway this governor to rule in his favor ultimately as he presents the facts. So this flattery is designed to do one thing, is to play on the arrogance and the pride of this corrupt government official. We finally, he finally gets to the charges. Let's look at verse 5. For we have found this man a real pest, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. I'm going to leave out the rest of that for right now. We'll come back to it. So a couple of charges that he levels against Paul here. There's primarily two. The first one is that Paul was stirring up Jews to rebel against Rome. That was a capital crime. The penalty for it was execution. Notice they refer to him here as a pest. More literally, that's the word for a plague. He's like an infectious disease. I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. That I wonder if Paul saw that as a compliment. You know, just simply meaning, all right, yeah, I'll take that. I want this to spread, you know? So they call him a pest. He's an infectious disease infecting society. He says that he was stirring up dissension. That's the word for rebellion among the Jews all throughout the Roman Empire, the world. Not only was he, you know, basically leading this rebellion with the Jews among Rome, they also said that he was a leader of a dangerous heretical cult. They use this word sect here, but... They call him a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. The word for sect there was simply a technical term that meant a division or a group of individuals in a religious sense. There were all kinds of sects within Judaism. There were the Pharisees, that was a sect. There were Sadducees, that was a sect. There were the Essenes, that was a sect. That's not necessarily a bad thing. We have sects here in the Christian church. We have Catholics and Lutherans. So from a purely generic technical standpoint, that's all a sect is. It's a group of people that share a common group of ideas within a broader umbrella of a religious entity. So within Christianity, not everybody agrees. So they have different groups. We might call them sects. Now, we have a tendency sometimes here in the United States to refer to sects as those aberrant religious entities, cults, etc., But there is a distinction between a cult and a sect, at least technically sometimes, if you just look at the pure sense of the word. Well, here they were using it in that second sense of a bad thing. It's a heretical group. And so we do, in some respects, use that here at times. We use it interchangeably with the word cult. But again, if you want to be real technical, you would sort of have a genuine group. You have a kind of a sect, an offshoot, but then you have a cult. Well, here they're using it more like a cult. They're using this to disparage Paul. So he's really kind of setting Paul up as an enemy of Rome, but also an enemy of the Jews. He doesn't fit into Judaism. He's on the outside. 
And we know that at this time there were these offshoot groups, Jewish groups, that believed in overthrowing Rome. Paul got accused of maybe being one or remember when the centurion arrested Paul and he said, aren't you that guy, that Egyptian dude who kind of did the rebellion and the 4,000 people he took outside? And, and um, So there was some of that and that's exactly what they're trying to do here. They're trying to align Paul with them. He's some cult leader. That's the first charge. That he's leading rebellion as a cult leader against Rome. The second charge is that he had attempted to desecrate the temple. Look at verses 6 through 8 again. And he even tried to desecrate the temple and then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. Notice that last section is probably in brackets. Some of your verses may not even have that in there, and the reason is verse 7 and most of verse 8 isn't found in most manuscripts. Most believe that it was probably added as a gloss or an explanation by scribes somewhere. It may be part of the original text. It may not be. It's hard to tell because, again, it doesn't appear in the best manuscripts, but it does appear in some. But for the most part, our focus should be on at least what we absolutely know to be part of the text, which is verse 6. Notice this, though. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. Notice before they accused him of actually desecrating the temple. Now they say, well, he tried to desecrate the temple. You know, it's interesting how it's difficult to keep a story straight when it's based on a lie. They had already lost before their own Sanhedrin when they tried to accuse Paul of actually desecrating the temple. And there were enough people that probably knew that that didn't happen. So now they kind of soften that too. Well, he tried. He tried to do it. You know, it's like when you get caught with your pants down, right? Well, well, he tried to. And so they can't even get their story straight. Did he do it or did he not do it? It's not a crime to try, unless maybe it's partially carried out. But regardless, so they can't even get his story straight. So what we find here is that this accusation, this bringing of charges was actually intended to portray Paul as a powerful and influential threat and an enemy to Rome. And he was playing on the fact that there were already tensions between Rome and the Jews. Felix had already put down one rebellion when it came to the 4,000 person rebellion led by the Egyptian. That was under his control. So now if they could convince Paul or convince the governor that Paul was leading a rebellion just like that guy, And just like others, he would be executed then by Rome. That was their hope. But just in case they couldn't quite do that, they bring up the Roman or the Jewish thing that, well, maybe if we can't convince him of that, we can at least convince him that he's an enemy to the Jews and you don't want to upset the Jews, so hand him over to us and then we can kill him. So they're kind of hedging their bets a little bit here, setting him up as an enemy of Rome, but also an enemy of a well-established religious group that was already having tensions with Rome. So what's the takeaway in in this? I would argue that in the same way that Paul was portrayed as an enemy of the state, Rome, and an enemy against the primary religion, Judaism, at least within that part of the world, most Christian persecution around the world is carried out under the guise of being an enemy of the state or an enemy of the largest religion in the area. That's pretty much standard everywhere. Secular countries like North Korea and China have openly declared Christianity as a threat. They've arrested, locked up Christians and others in notorious labor camps. They often take their family into custody as well. In fact, there's a standing policy in North Korea that if as a Christian you are arrested, the state actually pays attention to your family for the next four generations and punishes the family for at least those four generations. We know what's happening in China. 
The CCP under President Xi has carried out a plan to eradicate Christianity. In fact, they've got a term for it. It's called cynicization. You heard of that? It's actually a Japanese term that refers to eradicating Christianity in China. It's an official policy. They've given it a term, a name. The way that it's carried out is they try to transform. They don't come right out and ban Christianity. What they do is they try to transform the religious beliefs, faith, the practices of Christians by saying, well, you can be a Christian here, but you've got to abide by certain principles. You can be a church here, but you've got to register with the state to be a three person state, or they call it. I don't remember the exact term for it. There's a term for it in China right now. Um, they do things like tell pastors what they can preach on and what they can't. They remove crosses over churches and instead put up pictures of Xi in the churches. They bulldoze churches when they're not happy. They raid home churches. But you can still be a Christian in China. We don't stomp that out. We re-educate you. As long as you're a Christian and you can preach about Xi, as long as, in fact, the, the um, Chinese government has banned the import of any Bibles other than a new Chinese version of the Bible that's been rewritten. They've banned Apple and Google from being able to have people download Bible apps from the Google Play Store or the Apple iTunes app store. Control it. Manipulate it. But you can still be a Christian in China. Just be one like we say you should be. What about other countries that are dominated by Islam and Hindu? Hinduism. Think about Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, other places. Christianity is considered a threat to Islam. You know, the Malaysia government, I was researching this, the Malaysia government actually, I think last March, so basically just over a year ago, actually a year ago now, published a 130-page document entitled Exposing the Christian Agenda. That was from the Malaysian government, specifically saying Christians are here to destroy Islam. Here's how they're going to do it. When you think about the persecution that's being experienced by Christians in just India alone, because the government itself... And the general population believes that Christianity is a threat to Hinduism. There was just another Christian leader that was executed in India just this last week because he's considered a threat to Hinduism. So we have, in some areas, Christians are a threat to the state, and the government opposes. Then you have other areas where Christians are a threat to the major religion, which we find typically in Hinduism and Islam. Lest we think it's not happening here, what do we see happening here? Well, it's not really that bad here, right? Well, I want you to consider some things. Back under President Obama, it was discovered that the Department of Defense was actually caught training U.S. troops that Catholic, Jews, and evangelical Christians, and this is their language, were religious extremists and equated them with violent groups like Al-Qaeda, the KKK, and Hamas. We have the documents. That's what the Obama administration through the Department of Defense was teaching soldiers. At the same time, the U.S. Department of Defense, or I'm sorry, the um, U.S. Department of Homeland Security funded two studies that listed Christians as perpetrators of terrorism. Their own language. We have the documents. The Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act of 2021 actually calls for law enforcement to monitor what governments consider, and here they are, right-wing groups, that's their language, such as Christians, anybody who opposes transgenderism, anybody who opposes critical race theory, those that believe in, and get this, individual liberty and are opposed to government overreach. Their language in their documents. Part of an act. Why? Because we're a threat to the state. We're a bunch of terrorists. Dustin, you mentioned one last night, U.S. Attorney General a few months ago, Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice released a memo. What did that memo do? What did it say? Well, they likened parents who oppose the teaching of critical race theory and LGBT issues in public schools to what? 
What they call us? Domestic terrorists. Their language, we have the documents. They also said that law enforcement leaders should immediately start targeting parents who speak up at school board meetings, most of whom are who folks? Conservatives and Christians. Maybe not all Christians. Many of them are. Because we're the only ones with our eyes open. I mentioned a few weeks ago how time and time again in the liberal media, they've been labeling Christians as those who are destroying the public school system, who are negatively impacting society. They want to blame us for everything from the spread of COVID to racism and to climate change. I've heard all three of those. I've told you before, I don't just watch conservative media. I read it all. In fact, I probably spend more time with media that disagrees with where I would be because I think it's important to pay attention. But I have seen on TV, on CNN and NBC and others, commentators actually refer to Christians as destroying culture. I watched one blame us for the spread of COVID because we're all anti-vacciners. I've heard them blame us for being bigots and racists, all white supremacists, because Jesus and Christians are all founded on white supremacy. I even saw one blame us for climate change. Those are the only ones that were brave enough to speak out. Why do I bring all... I mean, you could probably be tired of hearing these things. Why do I bring this out? It was no different back then than it is today. You see, Christians are a threat, according to these people. We're a threat to the state. We're a threat to other religions. And so here Paul is, just doing his thing, sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Jews aren't happy about it. And so they bring him before the Romans, and they basically say, look, he's a threat to the state. These Christians are a rogue sect. They want to overthrow Rome. They hate us as Jews. They try to desecrate our temple. They do the same thing today. And it's just getting worse. It's been happening all over the world. Let's just come home here. This is just the beginning. I'm not a prophet, folks, or the son of a prophet, but I can see the writing on the wall. This is what's happening. This is our reality as Christians. And we need to be eyes open. So what happens next with Paul? Well, he gets an opportunity to defend himself. Look at verses uh, 10 through 13. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship, neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself, did they find me carrying on discussions with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. So Paul begins basically by responding to their charge and he's stirring up rebellion. He says, well, you can verify yourself that I just went up to Jerusalem 12 days ago. If I was here to cause a riot and a rebellion, really, I do this over 12 days. I just got here 12 days ago and I came to worship, he says. He says, I wasn't carrying on discussions with anyone or causing a riot. What he's talking about there is he wasn't carrying on a conversation about causing a riot or against Rome or any of that at all. He said, I wasn't doing that. There's no evidence of that. You can verify that. He goes on and he says that their charge of plotting these masses and everything else, where are the witnesses? He basically makes this case here. He's like, you can verify this. Nobody's got anything. There's nobody here that can prove I've done this. He then responds to their charge of being a ringleader of a sect. And I love this part. Look at verses 14 through 16. He says, but I will admit to you, I will admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the law of, or I'm sorry, the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, 
which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. The reason I love this, his accusers had referred to him with a derogatory phrase, the sect of the Nazarenes. But you notice Paul says, yeah, I'm a part of the way. He uses a, another word, another phrase that they would use to refer to the Christians. But rather than being a heretical sect, Paul establishes the fact that the way shares a number of things in common with the Jews. As a member of the way, he says, I served the God of our fathers, the God of the Jews. Contrary to their false claims, he says, everything that is in accordance with the law and what is written in the prophets, I agree with. He also shared the same hope that the Jews did in God. He says, there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. I share that same hope. And so it's interesting what he does here because he starts off immediately, and this is something that probably stunned his accusers, he basically confesses to be a Christian. He doesn't try to soft pedal it or walk back from it. He basically says, I confess to you. I admit to you. I am a member of the way. I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, I actually share a lot in common with these folks over here. One of which is that I agree with the law. I agree with meaning the Old Testament, the the word of God, just like they do. But I also believe in something else that they do, which is the hope that God gave to the Jews. The resurrection of both the wicked and the righteous. He doesn't back down here at all. The claim that he was a leader of a dangerous heretical cult was intended to malign him and cause suspicion, but Paul turned the accusation on its head by claiming that it was precisely because he was a follower of the way that he was committed to do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. This was a poke in the eye of these other Jews. Because what were they doing? Lying. They were corrupt. They trying to assassinate Paul. And here he's the one saying, you know what? It's because I believe in Jesus Christ that I'm committed to righteousness. I'm committed to honesty, to goodness. Committed to the God of my fathers. Paul finally responds to the other charge of desecrating the temple. Look at verses 17 through 21. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusations if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead I am on trial before you. In other words, what Paul does here, he confesses to being in the temple. Yeah, I was in the temple. My purpose to go to the temple was to present alms and offerings for my people. And oh, by the way, there was no uproar. There was no angry crowd there. I wasn't there preaching and people standing up shaking their fists at Rome. It wasn't until these Jews from Asia that came, they're the ones that started the fight. They're the ones that caused the uproar. And then he does something else. He basically says, you know, shouldn't there be people from there that came here to you to present these charges? Shouldn't there be some eyewitnesses, in other words? Where, where are these people, Felix? They've got a case against me. Why didn't they bring these people in to prove their case? And oh, by the way, did they tell you, Felix, about what happened at the council meeting? Why haven't they brought that up is in essence what he's doing here. Why didn't they bring that up? Because they couldn't agree among themselves that Paul was a threat. Remember what happened there? 
Some of them said, there's nothing wrong with this guy. Maybe he did see an angel from the Lord. Maybe what he's saying is true. And others said, well, not really. And the whole thing devolved into total chaos to where the commander had to rush in to prevent Paul from being torn apart. And so that's, in essence, what he's actually doing here is he's saying, why don't they tell you about that? They couldn't even agree that I was a problem, that I was a threat. They have no eyewitnesses. They can't prove anything. I didn't have these conversations. I went there to worship, and my conscience is clear. This is a pretty amazing defense. Because all he's doing is admitting that he loves the Lord, that he's a follower of Christ, and that he's committed to righteousness, to goodness, all the things that Judaism actually stands for. And they couldn't prove otherwise. They had nothing. So what's the takeaway? While Paul defended himself against the false accusations, he didn't shy away from proudly declaring that he was indeed a Christian. In fact, he made a special point of drawing attention to it. He says, I admit, confess to it. It makes me wonder when we're faced with persecution, you know, we've got a choice. We're going to compromise our values or principles or our doctrines to try to appease the people that are bringing the accusations against us. Or are we going to stand up to it? You know, when somebody accuses us of being anti-LGBTQ, you know, we oftentimes will say, well, you know, God loves the sinner, just not the sin, and we try to, you know, do that, and there may be time for that. But isn't it appropriate to say, yeah, that's something that God the Father doesn't approve of? There are many churches that have chosen to go the other direction. I don't want to focus too much on that issue. It's just that it's a one that's way out there. What about racism and other things? You know, we've got, when Christian parents have stood up and said, we don't want this hate taught in our schools, and they start labeling us, you know, I think we need to make sure that we don't back down too much and we admit the things that we believe. Make sure they're aligning with Scripture. But far too many here have compromised. I've shared examples before, of, you know, last couple of weeks ago about the um, pastor down in Florida. He used to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention who was gloating, I'll say, to some degree about having those who were sexually immoral, including guy and girl Christians living together against the word of God who are serving in in positions at his church. Wait a minute. Paul says not to associate when you have actively rebellious, deliberately rebellious Christians. And yet here's someone trying to appease the masses, make it look like our church is real welcoming. We should be welcoming. You know, if, if somebody walked in here, we should welcome him in. But if it's a brother or sister in Christ who continues to live that way, in opposition to the scriptures, that's different when it's active rebellion. And it's that way for any sin, not just this sin. And we have a tendency sometimes to focus more on how do we get out of this squirmy situation here. You know, I'm thankful for people like Jack the Cake Dude out on the West Coast, or, uh, West Coast and some of the others who um, have refused to compromise doing certain things against I mean, their businesses. They've paid a severe price by saying, I just, I just can't. I can't do things I'm being told I have to do because they violate my conscience, they violate the word of God. I will not do them. Many have lost their businesses or suffered significant financial hardship. That's just the start. What will it be like if we are arrested or if we are prosecuted or persecuted? Will we, on that stand, much like Paul, say, no, you're right. I'm going to admit, I'm a follower of Christ. I believe these things. So be it. Do what you will. That's a rough place to be, isn't it? None of us wants to be there. None of us wants to face persecution. But Paul, and this is the, probably the greatest takeaway for me in this, Paul didn't back down. Didn't back down at all. Neither should we. We should be gracious and kind, much like Paul. 
We've seen that before. How even when he kind of responded when he got punched in the face and he responded in a way that was apparently inappropriate. So we have to make sure that we're not responding with vitriol or hatred or only preaching against things. But they're willing just to stand up and say, no, this is me. Accuse me of being a Christian. Go ahead. I'll admit to it. Proud of it. That's what Paul did. The last thing we see here is the judge. You would expect a ruling at this point. Paul's done with his argument. The judge, however, abdicates his responsibility. He does not do what a judge should do. He should rule on this, but he doesn't. But here's the thing. It provides Paul with an opportunity to further share the gospel with him. Remember, that's why Paul's there. We have to remember that. The reason why Paul is standing in front of Felix here is not because he did anything wrong. It's because Jesus said, guess what, Paul? You're going to go testify before Felix. That's why Paul's there. Instead of issuing a ruling, what does he do? Well, we're going to wait here. Look at verse 22 and 23. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, in other words, meaning, yeah, Felix knew that what the Jews were saying about the way was completely false. He was aware of it. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, in other words, a more accurate knowledge about the way, put them off. In other words, he just, eh, forget their argument. He could see through it. Saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for Paul to be kept in custody and let have some freedom, and yet have some freedom, and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. So in essence, essence, what he does here now is he basically confines Paul to house arrest. Probably in the governor's mansion. That's what we're told elsewhere, that that's most likely where he was put. He gives him some freedom, but he doesn't really let him go. He's still in custody. He allows Paul's friends to come and see him and do things, but... He does this little thing here where he says, well, we'll wait till Lysias comes down. Well, Lysias isn't going to come down. He had no intent on coming down. He was the commander. He sent a letter. Felix already knew what Lysias believed. He didn't need Lysias to come. This was just a ruse to keep Paul in custody because we find out later he was hoping to get a bribe. And Paul actually spends two years in confinement. But here's the thing. What seems like a miscarriage of justice for Paul actually resulted in ongoing opportunities, more than one, for Paul to share the gospel with Felix. Look at verses 24 through 27. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife. Felix, because he was governor of the region, would travel around the region. It's not like we've always, you know, not like we got to go down to the courthouse all the time. Back then, the courthouse kind of came to you on many occasions. And so he would travel. So when he came back to Caesarea, he came with his wife, Drusilla. She's a Jew. Um, And he sent for Paul. And he heard Paul do what? Speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Philip, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. Now think about this for a moment. Felix's point is he wants a bribe. But he apparently also enjoyed talking to Paul. And you notice here that it says Paul was able to talk about his faith in Christ. But look at the other things Paul was able to discuss with him. Righteousness. He was able to talk to him about self-control. He was even able to talk to him about the judgment to come. All of those things, it said, were enough that it frightened Felix. Made him think. doesn't say that he disagreed says that he was frightened. So frightened that he was like, go away, I don't want to talk about this anymore. But he also says, but just go away for the present, 
I'll summon you again. And apparently he did for two years, which means for two years, Paul got an opportunity to testify before Felix. We don't know. He was assassinated ultimately. We don't know that he ever came to Christ. But the other thing that we notice here about this is he uses an interesting word. Uh, What verse is that? Um, Oh, he used to send, end of verse 26, he used to send for him quite often and converse with him. That word means a two-way conversation, which means this was a dialogue. This guy, when he would come back into town, would call Paul in and sit down and talk with Paul. I cannot think of a more powerful witnessing opportunity. It's one thing to stand up in front of a council or to stand up in front of a judge and present your case. It's another to engage in dialogue back and forth on multiple occasions and be able to talk about the subjects that Paul was able to talk about with him. If Felix did not come to Christ, and I don't suspect that he did, but I'm not his judge, his heart had to be hard as stone because he was given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. I would imagine that while Paul was maybe a little frustrated that he was still there for two years, I imagine Paul relished the opportunity every time Felix came into town because he got another opportunity to try to convince him about Christ. So what's the takeaway for this? Paul obviously faced injustice here. There's no question about that. It wasn't fair. Didn't get a fair trial. Didn't get a fair judge. Didn't receive a fair sentence because even though the judge abdicated his responsibility, Felix, he did get sentenced, if you will, just by proxy. Got stuck in a place without complete freedom for two years. In fact, we find out next as we go on to Festus that when Felix was removed from office, when he was assassinated, or slightly before he was assassinated, he just left Paul there because he was trying to do, do Jews a favor. So he left him there for, for Festus to deal with. But here's the takeaway. He may have faced injustice, but he took advantage of that injustice and turned it into an opportunity for faith to discuss Jesus Christ. We're going to talk in a couple of weeks about the difference between seeing things from a human perspective versus a divine perspective. Because from one perspective, human perspective, Paul faced injustice. From a divine perspective, God gave him two years of opportunity before Festus. I mean, before Felix. So my question is, how is the American church going to respond to the growing injustice that we face? We're going to look at it as another opportunity? I think about Jack the cake baker once again. I've watched him do interviews. He talks about his faith in Christ. Why not? You got a camera in front of my face? Great opportunity. That's what Paul did. Took advantage of the injustice. Didn't sit in the jail cell and sulk. Was able to talk about some pretty serious matters with Felix. Sometimes I'm a little dismayed because I see the church respond with hate, vitriol. I've been watching the whole trucker convoy thing. You guys have heard me talk about it. It's just kind of neat. But it's been a while now. They've been out there for 15 days or something. They traveled from California now in Hagerstown. They go and drive around the Beltway every day. And some, many of them are, are, I wouldn't say all obviously, but many of them appear to be faith-based people, meaning probably a mix of genuine Christians and those who wear the Christian label. But it's been interesting to watch how the longer this goes on, how more and more are calling for more aggressive means, more aggressive measures, you know. And... Um, some of them are using biblical language about marching around the city to tear down the walls of Jericho, etc. They quote in scriptures out of context and stuff like that. But it's been interesting as I watch it because they're getting frustrated. Not all of them. Some of them are. Um, that's the way the Christian church sometimes can get too. You know, with the mask mandates and shutting down buildings and, and that kind of stuff. 
And um, I think a, probably a better approach, and it's not that we shouldn't be frustrated, I think we should, but we might want to look at it from the perspective of how can God use this to open up a door for us to be witnesses instead and to use that as an opportunity to share the gospel. A good example might be, you know, we get shut down, we can't meet. Maybe instead of yelling and screaming about our rights to be have our doors open, maybe we talk about the importance of Christians getting together and the importance of fellowship. There's a different approach than to just yell and scream about our rights, but to talk about our needs when it comes to what the Lord commands us to meet. That's why we're upset, because this is important to us. We want to be meeting with other Christians because it honors the Lord, and we can do that graciously and honestly. Um, and again, that's just one thought. But I love this passage because it gives us another good example of how we should respond as we watch how Paul responds in the face of injustice, lies about him, um, being in captivity. He responds in a way that still focuses on the gospel and advancing the gospel. We're going to see that continue throughout the rest of the book. I'm, almost, I'm going to be studying the last chapter in the book of Acts this next week here. So my study will be done. You guys will follow behind that a little bit. But um, we will continue to see that pattern with Paul. His focus is always on the gospel, no matter what happens around him. His focus is on how can God use this to help further or help advance the gospel. And that's where our focus ought to be as well. doesn't mean Paul wasn't frustrated. There were times where he got discouraged. In fact, one of the passages coming up here, the Lord tells him, be encouraged, Paul, which means he was likely a little discouraged at that time. He was human, and we are too. But again, the focus should always be on the gospel, should it not?